for the ANA Champions of Growth podcast, I'm Matthew Schwartz. It's something we all crave, reciprocity. When reaching out to show support or interest in family, friends, or business colleagues, we expect them to respond in kind. If not, life turns into a one-way street, and that's no fun. It's a similar construct with so-called brand love. When someone says, I love such and such a brand, for whatever reason, he may not mean it in the way he says he loves his spouse or his children. Nonetheless, when people express love for a company, they often expect something in return, perhaps even subconsciously. So how do brands respond to that sentiment when it comes to their audiences? Should they even try? Shouldn't providing quality and consistent service be good enough? Do companies that invest in generating brand love risk a stroll down the primrose path? Here to talk about brand love and how companies should think about it is Aaron Ahuvia, a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan Dearborn, keynote speaker, and author of the recently published The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. Aaron, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Aaron, I want to start on a fairly Socratic note. In your book, The Things We Love, You examine the love people have for inanimate objects and things. In my case, that might be Grateful Dead music, whatever that is, or a shirt my dad bought me a million years ago because he said I would look good in it. My dad was pretty stingy with the compliments. So I get that frame. But do brands fit within that scope? Can people truly love brands whose main purpose is to make money and angle for market share? It depends on what consumer segment you're focusing on. You mentioned that you are a Grateful Dead head. Excellent. Lots of people I know fall in that category. People in that category often are particularly sort of alienated from brands. For them, loving a brand doesn't fit with their sense of identity. And one of the things that we're going to see uh, as we talk about it more is People love things that fit with their sense of identity. But there's many, many people who are very comfortable loving brands. And you know this because they wear visible brand logos on their clothing and are happy about that. Those people, it's not such a problem for them. One of the things that helps people love a brand or anything else is if they feel their relationship with it fits their idea of what a loving mutual relationship is like. And there is this threat, the consumer is going to love the brand, the brand isn't going to love the consumer back. That's one of the reasons that many people do have some hesitation about feeling that they love brand. You are making a commitment to love the consumers back. And the definition of love vis-a-vis brands can be quite subjective. I love the colors and the design in the brand logo. I love the fact that I never have to wait online when I visit XYZ retailer. When love can be all things to all people, how do CMOs and brand managers approach the notion of brand love strategically? I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Love can't be all things to all people. Love is a collection of neurological and chemical processes in the brain. It is not limited to human beings. There are lots of other animals that have a very similar neurological and chemical processes in their brain that do very similar things. So when I talk about brand love, what I mean is getting those 
same kinds of processes or very closely related processes to operate with regard to a product or a brand or a company or a nonprofit or a charity or whatever the heck it is that you're trying to market out there. Now, what triggers those processes is going to be different for different people. Some people might feel that something is particularly beautiful, that they love a particular color scheme that triggers those processes for them. And the more specific you get, the more variety it is. But even at the level of what triggers those processes, there's going to be some commonality. So for example, beautiful things often trigger those processes. What people find beautiful, yeah, now we're into you know, a, a wide range of things. If you're going to pursue a brand love strategy, often you're having to target people more specifically. It's, it's harder to have brand love if you've one brand for a huge number of people because often you need it to be a little bit narrower. You can still have a very large target market. You can still have millions and millions of people, but it's got to be a little bit more specific in order to connect with them at a deeper level. Let's stay in this lane. When we spoke previously, you also said that the brain thinks about objects differently from the ways it thinks about people. And you sometimes talk about this by saying that when the brain is thinking about objects, it is in, quote, object mode. And when it thinks about people, it is in social mode. What does that have to do with brand love? Everything. Everything to do with brand love. And this is the fact that most people completely miss. And they miss it both when they're explicitly trying to create a brand love strategy and when they're pursuing what is in effect a brand love strategy, even though they don't know it and they don't call it that. One of the things we've learned from neuroscience is that the brain is not like general purpose information processor that can deal with all sorts of things. The brain actually evolved specifically for dealing with social relationships between people. We think about people often even using different physical parts of the brain. I mean, it comes right down to if you watch a person vacuum the floor, you will process that in one part of your brain. If you watch a Roomba vacuum the floor, you will process that in a different part of your brain. Or there are chemical processes like uh, oxytocin-based bonding. It's not a particular place in the brain, but it's a way the brain operates. And it does that for people. It really normally doesn't do that for objects. Everything that marketers really want is connected to people. That's the fundamental insight. If you come away from this with one realization, it's like, oh my God, all these things we've been searching for as marketers, we want real brand loyalty. We want brand evangelists to go out there and just trumpet to other consumers the virtues of our brand. We want to be able to charge more than average in our category for our products to have a, a higher profit margin. We want people to have a sense of a long-term committed, energized, excited relationship with the brand. All of those things are things that the brain normally under normal circumstances reserves for some people and doesn't naturally produce for some, you know, for objects. And try and follow it to a logical conclusion. When people think about products and brands in the normal way, they think about objects. They can't truly love them. But sometimes people in these situations might still say, I love that. Boom, brand manager, my day is made. But just to play devil's advocate for a moment... If they don't really love the product, what are they actually communicating to the brand manager? When people say, I love that, and we say this all the time, and we don't actually love the thing, you know, I love your haircut, Ugh, yeah, new car, yeah, I love your car, right. I love your shoes, whatever it might be. Um, what that means is that's really good. 
I love your haircut means that's an excellent haircut. I love your shoes means those are excellent shoes. That's all it means. We can learn something from this. What people are doing is they're taking a part of love and they're using it to stand in for the whole thing. You need all five boroughs. If you want to win mayor of New York election, you got to get votes in all five boroughs, right? If you want people to love your brand, you have to be successful in all the different areas of love. One of those areas is, I think it's excellent. The reason people say New York when they mean Manhattan is that in their mind, Manhattan is the biggest, most interesting, most important part of New York. No offense to the people who live in the many other wonderful boroughs of New York. And the reason people use, I love it to mean it's excellent is that that is, in many ways, the first starting point for brand love, that they have to think it's excellent. It shows the importance of that. And that is backed up by neuroscience research that scans people's brains while the people are experiencing brand love and romantic love and love to a family member that isn't romantic. And they look at the similarities and differences. And one of the key differences is the part of the brain that's used for quality judgments. How good is this? Is a lot more active when people are thinking about products and brands they love than it is when they're thinking about their kids. That's a particular focus. And when people ask me, well, what do I do to create brand love? I always have to say, well, the first thing is you have to have a really good product or service. And sometimes people think, oh, I've got this mediocre product, but instead of improving my product, I'm going to create brand love. They're like, no, you're not. First thing is it's got to be good, but being good alone will not get you really sustained brand love because the consumer's brain is still in object mode and they evaluate quality as something we do for objects all the time. Loyalty and enthusiasm and emotional connection, they all live on the human side of that divide. What are the pros and cons of a brand love strategy? versus a so-called useful, pleasant, easy strategy. I came up with this term, useful, pleasant, easy, to describe what people want from objects. As humans evolved, there were objects in an environment, there was food, there were trees. And what other animals want from those objects? We want them to be useful to us. Most animals, that's just food. There are some animals that use tools and other kinds of things, uh, other primates. For humans, we, we wanted more than that because we did use some tools, but basically we want the stuff to be useful and then we want it to be a pleasant experience and we want it to be an easy, convenient experience. If you aren't going to attempt to generate brand love, then you're going to compete on useful, pleasant, and easy. And that means that you just are going to recognize certain things about the reality of where you are. You're going to have some brand loyalty, but it's not going to be very high and you're never going to get it very high. And so you say, okay, brand loyalty is just, it's never going to be that high for me. So I've got to go out there and get a lot of new customers. And I'm going to grow the brand by finding new uses and new customers and just bringing them in faster than then they go out the other end. And that's how I'm going to grow the brand. Similarly, you're never going to have customers who are really evangelists for your brand, who are so passionate about the brand. They go on the internet and they tell everyone about it, how much they love this brand. That's not going to happen. That's all right. So what you're going to do is you're going to use a lot of paid media to get your message out because you're not going to rely on that. And you may have a few people like that, but you're not going to have a lot of people like that. Is a useful, pleasant, and easy strategy, does that equate to brand-like and that the marketers have to realize this is our ceiling? We just don't have the resources, the wherewithal to attain brand love. 
Walmart's a great example of a company that makes a ton of money, immensely successful. It does not use a brand love strategy. There are people who love Walmart, but it's not because Walmart set out. Compare Walmart to Apple. Apple very consciously and intentionally tries to create brand love and does a really good job of it. And you can see a huge difference, but they're both really successful. They're just doing it in really different ways. If you look at Walmart, it's super useful. It's got all these things that you need and you just know they're going to be at a good price or sometimes the lowest price. It's not honestly that pleasant. They've got it to the point where it's not too unpleasant. That's about as good as they're, they're able to get there. And it's reasonably easy. It could be easier. There could be shorter lines when you go you know, for checkout. It's easy enough and the usefulness is so high that it outweighs the fact that it's not that pleasant and not that easy, but it would be better for if they could elevate those a, a little bit. And they know that, they work on that. The only thing that I hesitate with saying that that's a brand like versus a brand love is that the words like and love are used in English in just a lot of different ways. One way that we use the words like and love is to say they're the same thing, only love is more of it. To get to brand love, you've got to get people to start applying the social thinking processes to the brand. That's a qualitatively different project. That's a very expensive project. But but again, just to stay in this lane for a moment, brand like, there's nothing wrong with it. And the brand manager and his or her team need to know that we can't chase something that isn't necessarily there. One of the things that bothers me the most in the discourse around this, the discussions around this, there are these huge debates, sometimes specifically about brand love, but often just more generally about these different strategies. Most people in those debates try and sell everybody on the idea that it's one size fits all. Every company should strive for brand love, it's the greatest, or brand love is BS, nobody should try and do that. Customers don't wanna love your brand, don't be ridiculous. The reality is that both of those strategies are excellent and they're not equally available to all companies. Again, I think if you look at Apple and Walmart, you've got these two enormously successful companies, but they're successful in completely different ways from each other. One of the things I do is I work with companies to think this through because this is a basic strategic choice. And what happens in a lot of companies inside, there's this debate going on. They don't have the vocabulary. They don't use the word brand love. They don't use the phrase useful, pleasant, easy. They don't know about the brain and how your brain treats objects differently than people. You don't know any of that. But they do know, wow, there's some people who really want to create this deep relationship between the customer and the brand. And there's other people who say, you're not going to get that deep relationship. Just make it really convenient. Make it a good brand. Make sure it's, it's, it's for sale everywhere the consumers are. Make the advertising ubiquitous and keep expanding and, and you'll grow the brand that way. Those are the two sort of differences there in the approach, and they both can work, but you can't flip back and forth. Stay with us. There's more to come. We now take a break for a brief message regarding ANA Newsstand. The ANA produces four in-house publications covering the latest developments and trends in B2C, B2B, brand purpose, and across the industry at large. With practical insights from leading brand marketers, agency partners, and industry experts, our publications are designed to give marketers the real-world intelligence they need to drive growth and boost their value. Find the publications at ana.net slash newsstand. And now back to our show. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Aaron Ahuvia, a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan Dearborn, keynote speaker, and author of The Things We Love, 
about the psychology behind brand love. Aaron, in light of the question just before the break, what can CMOs and marketers do when it comes to intentionally targeting brand love? I've been mentioning that there are these three basic ways that the brain can think about objects. It starts treating them in some ways like people. And that that is required because the things that we want, like loyalty and enthusiasm, really the brain reserves those for people. Most obvious way, but also the least frequent, is anthropomorphism. That means you do something to the product or the brand that makes it look like a person, talk like a person, act like a person. Cars, the front of the car. Designers call that the face of the car. The headlights look like eyes. It looks sort of like a face. Give it a facial expression. People are really susceptible to that. Uh, things don't need to look very much like people to trigger the mechanism in the brain that sorts everything into whether it's a person or not. Something that looks like, like a face, it gets flipped and your brain starts thinking about it like a person. So, and, I'm, and I'm sorry to interrupt, Aaron, but it's almost like the person, he's already halfway there when you talk about, oh, it can be a person, it's got, a, got the eyes. And sort of, right. I mean, it's all, and in terms of the brain, almost like a willing partner to look upon this object as a person. We all know the cliche, to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The largest part of our brain is what's called the neocortex. Now many people call it the social cortex. It evolved to help us with interpersonal relationships. So it's like a tool for dealing with people. A person with a hammer thinks everything is a nail. A person with a brain that evolved for looking at people thinks everything's a person. Give us half an excuse to go in that way and the mm -hmm. brain will go in that way. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to do it. The two most common ways overlap a bit with each other. So the second one is that we, in our mind, connect the product or the brand to a human being and the connection is strong enough that when we think about the brand, we think about the person and they kind of meld together in your brain. And so you mm -hmm. start thinking about it in social ways. You've got that mental connection to a person when if you like the person more, you like the object more, you like the person less, you like the object less. Think about if you were dating and the person gave you like a gift, something like decorative for your home. You might proudly display that in your home and really like that object. Later, maybe you break up with the person all of a sudden, you don't like, so that your liking for the object is totally tethered to how you feel about the person. That's the clue. Now, how do you use that in marketing? Well, there's so many different ways that this can work. Some of the obvious ones are you make that person a spokesperson for the firm or the founder of the firm. Many people who love Apple are very attached to Steve Jobs. I've talked to Ferrari aficionados, Ferrari owners, they have this deep love for Enzo Ferrari, and they really associate that man who created the firm with the firm and with the cars. And because of that strong connection, they think about the whole thing in these social ways. The first way you get the product itself to sort of be like a person because it's anthropomorphic. The second is that you connect the product to a person in the consumer's mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and the third is a version of that. You connect the product to a person, but it's a really special person. It's the consumer themselves. So the product becomes part of the consumer's own identity. You don't have to just use one, but if you were to just use one, that's the most powerful one because it's connected to the core of how love works psychologically and how love evolved biologically in our brain. 
What are some of the other salient examples of companies that execute well on brand love? And what are the marketing and communication traits that they share in terms of a, a loose consensus we can share? And what are the speed bumps? Patagonia and Black Rifle Coffee, really different brands. For those, most people I assume are familiar with Patagonia, Black Rifle Coffee identifies itself with political conservative causes, has been growing very fast. Revenues are about $163 million a year from a little startup. What that shows is you've got Patagonia, which sort of resonates with people a little bit more on the left who have a strong environmental consciousness. And you've got Black Rifle Coffee, which is about military veterans and people a little bit more on the right. For people in those groups, each of those brands connects with them at a deeper level. Every person has superficial things about us, maybe our hair color, and we've got deep things about us, our personal values, our views about faith, all these sort of deeper emotional issues. Both of these brands are connecting to consumers at that level. Consumers will have a brand and make it part of their identity if they feel proud to be associated with that brand. And sometimes you might feel proud to be associated with a brand because it's a super high brand like Ferrari or Gucci. But sometimes you feel proud to be associated with a brand because it reflects your values and what you think is important in the world. Many people really love Tesla. Tesla was one of the most loved brands and it still is one of the most loved brands, but it's having some trouble because the people who loved Tesla, one of the things they loved about it was that, yes, it was a luxury car and it was super high performance and like the technology, but it was also green. It connected with their deep social values about being good for the world and good for the environment. That attracted a certain somewhat progressive, a little bit left of center market to them. Now you've got Elon Musk, he's all involved in Twitter. He's saying a lot of things which are more on the right of center side of things. And all of a sudden you've got all these Tesla owners who are like, well, there's this old joke. It doesn't matter who you marry. They're going to be a totally different person the next morning anyway. So I think a lot of Tesla owners feel that way. We married Tesla. We thought it was this progressive brand. Now it's this other kind of brand. He's saying these other things. So that's creating some sort of conflicts. Those are some examples about the successful messaging with Patagonia and Black Rifle and problematic messaging now inadvertently coming from Tesla. Or corporate consistency when you've got several brands under the hood, correct? Yeah. Every brand doesn't have to target the same market. A lot of people think, oh, I don't want to identify with ecological concerns because not everybody wants that. If you're going for a useful, pleasant, and easy approach, that makes a lot of sense. People aren't buying you because you're ecological issues. If you want brand love, it doesn't have to be political. It absolutely does not. Avon does a great job of this. Avon is about women's empowerment, but not in a way that's politically very identified with right or left. And it has a charitable work around breast cancer, which is totally on brand for women. And it connects with this whole person thing, person, the same way that I was talking about, you get a person involved. Well, they've got the, they have the representatives uh, mm -hmm. of the company that come mm -hmm. And so you make a connection with this person and that connects you to the company. That's huge. And for people who are in their target market, they connect really deeply and it's not political. So the politics is just one example. That's an easy example. There yeah. are other ways to do it, but you can still cover the whole market with using multiple brands targeting different segments. With any marketing endeavor, we need to quote our old friend, Peter Drucker. You can't improve what you don't measure.
How do marketers measure the idea of brand love? Brand love is by no means unmeasurable. It's not this vague thing that you can never measure. You can measure it very dependably. And those measures are extremely strongly related to outcomes like willingness to pay a price premium, brand loyalty, brand evangelism, all those nice things that you get from brand love. The strength of the connection between those measures and those outcomes is remarkably high. Um, in a structural equation model, it's 0.6 or 0.7. For people who know what that jargon means, you'll recognize that that's a really surprisingly high number. Aaron, as we start to wrap up, for the bird's eye view, how crucial is it that marketers start to think about customers as people and not consumers, quote unquote, or vehicles to generate more revenue? Is that the new mindset if marketers even want to consider brand love? It comes back to what we started off talking about. You know, consumers might love the brand. Will the brand love the consumer back in enough of a way? That's a big test for this, both pragmatically it's going to be very hard to sustain brand love if the brand isn't loving the consumer back. And ethically, when you ask the consumer to love the brand, you're saying, don't just treat me like a business relationship. You know, make this a little bit more of a personal relationship. And if you do that, well, then you need to reciprocate. It's going to mean thinking about the consumer's actual long-term interest and trying to help them succeed in the goals that they think are important, as opposed to just thinking about like where your next sale is coming from. Marketers want to do that. I know a lot of marketers who really long for an opportunity to focus on more singularly on helping their customers. That's something that the marketer would find very gratifying. If you can do that in a really profitable way, it's a win-win for everybody. I don't think marketers want to be in a position where they're taking advantage of anybody. I think that feels crappy as, a, as a, someone who's working, just as it feels crappy as a customer. You've got a strategy that lets you succeed at your profitability goals and do it in a way that you, as an employee of the company, feel really good about and the customer feels really good about. What's not to love? And some very illuminating uh, comments to end on. And now, Aaron, we're going to move to our lightning round question which is what is the biggest challenge facing CMOs right now? You can pick just one. Balancing long-term profitability and short-term goals. That is not a new challenge. It has been inherent to marketing. Uh, it is true in every aspect of our life that there is a tension between our long-term and our short-term goals. In marketing, it's a little bit more salient than in some other areas. Brand love is a long-term play. It may help you if you do it really well in the short term as well. A lot of the things you do to create brand love are a little bit more of a, a couple years out payoff. I will say in favor of a brand love strategy that three, four, five years from now, it's going to be the, the present that's coming. And if you start today, you'll be in a good basis for, for solving your problems that you feel are the short-term problems. You'll be in a strong position to solve them when you have a certain amount of real love from consumers. Though the research does show that in terms of stockholder return, shareholder return, and profitability, brand love does extremely well. It is a little bit more of a long-term connection. And we'll have to leave it there. To learn more about brand love, please go to amazon.com and check out the things we love, how our passions connects us and makes us who we are. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. 
If you would like to recommend a guest or topic for a future episode, please email me at mschwartz at ana.net. And be sure to subscribe to Champions of Growth wherever you listen to podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thanks for listening.